A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. It's been the kind of summer that makes it seem like the alarmists were right about everything. Heat waves and drought and wildfires across the West. Hurricanes along the East Coast drowning people in their cars in New Jersey and in their basement apartments in New York. So, yeah, climate change is real. And most Americans believe that that is what we're seeing right now. But for most of us, including me, knowing that that is our future, it doesn't change much for us. You know, it's like knowing that you're going to die someday. Like, sure, true. And then you put it aside. Go on with your day. But there are people out there who look at the same evidence that the rest of us do, and they just, I don't know, take it to heart in a way that most of us don't. They have a wake-up moment. Rebecca Huntley had one. Totally took her by surprise. So I'm a really early riser. I'm like a 5.30 a.m. riser. Um, I think a lot of mums are because it's sometimes the only time that you have any quiet time. Like everyone's asleep, make the first of 10 coffees that I'll consume that day, sit on the couch, turn the TV on, and I just see all of these young Australians, like thousands of them, walking on the streets of Sydney, which is where I live, all of them looking like they could be, you know, friends of my eldest daughter. It was a massive climate strike. Young people skipping school to protest, inspired by Greta Thunberg and her protests. And they were carrying all these signs, you know, most of them handmade, saying, we can't vote, we don't have a lot of money, we don't have a lot of power individually or even as a group, do something. She says it felt like they were pleading for action, their generation to hers. And the fact that they seemed exactly like her own children, it just got to her in this way that was new. And I realised, actually, these kids are talking directly to me, specifically to me. It felt so personal. And I need to do something. And something in me shifted at that exact moment, and it felt physical. I felt an internal physical sensation. And even now as I talk about it, I'm not a crier. I actually well up with tears thinking about it because it was this genuine sense of, you know, I can think about my kids and the things that I do for them every day. You know, I make sure they brush their teeth and I make sure they do their mass homework. And this is one of those things, you know, suddenly the, the fact that we've got a very limited period of time to turn this around. You know, the scientists talk about, you know, 10 years. They talk about 2030. So we've got the next decade. And in the next decade, my youngest kids won't yet have finished high school. And it just suddenly seemed so extraordinarily urgent, critically important. And I remember finishing my coffee, getting up off the couch. And I went straight to my study and I logged into my, um, you would describe it as a pension fund, but we call it superannuation. And within 10 minutes, I'd divested my superannuation completely away from fossil fuels. And so that was one of, you know, hundreds of different things that I started to do from that point on, um, triggered by that moment. Rebecca actually talked to one of our producers, Aviva de Kornfeld, who in the last few months has interviewed dozens of people who have had these wake-up moments. Hey there, Aviva. Hey, Ira. So these happen in all kinds of different ways, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, to all kinds of different people, all of whom actually made a point to tell me 
They did not consider themselves environmentalists in any way prior to their wake-up moment. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's more like they were just walking around and got bonked on the head and then everything changed. People describe it like waking up in a bizarro world where everything's the same, but the way they feel about it is totally different. The wake-up reorganizes their priorities completely. In fact, lots of support groups have popped up in the past few years to help people deal with the immensity of these new feelings. What happened to Rebecca? In Rebecca's case, she totally changed the focus of her career, pivoted it to climate issues. She also cut back on eating meat, decided she needed to get an electric car or have no car. Uh, And those are the kind of things that would affect the rest of her family, her husband Uh and her kids. And what I found in these interviews is that this is where the trouble comes in for so many people. Like when their families haven't undergone the same transformation that they have. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Everyone mentioned some version of this. Like this one guy, Glenn Schleyer, I talked to, after his wake-up moment, he tried to convince his whole family, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, to all see this the way that he now did and to come to climate rallies with him. The common reaction that I got was, wow, I didn't know you were so passionate about this environmental stuff or like you're really into this. It's really like interesting. Um, It's great. It's great. I really support you. It's great that you're into this. And that was just like, that was so frustrating to me because I'm like, I'm not into this. It's just what's happening. It's like if there was a truck barreling toward us and I was trying to get us out of the way, you wouldn't be like, wow, you're super passionate about trucks. Like, I just didn't know you're like so into trucks. Like, was this always a thing? I think it's really great that you have this interest. It's like, no, this is just what's happening. So I was like, you you just keep running back and forth, like yelling at people. Um, Do you ruin your relationships? And I realized that I was potentially impacting relationships that are the most important thing to me in the world for no benefit. No benefit because? Because it wasn't changing anyone's mind. It wasn't working. So Glenn decided to leave his family alone. But other people told me that they couldn't back off in the same way. And it's had a huge impact on some of their closest relationships. And that actually uh, brings us to today's program. Uh, The idea for our show today came from Aviva's interest in these families where one person sees something that feels big and important and urgent, and they try to bring everybody along. And it is just bad for everyone. We have uh, one story like that, plus a story about a surprisingly effective way to deal with the problems of the world, large and small. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Taquan, 1.5 degrees of separation. So Aviva was interested in the toll that having a wake-up moment like this could have on a family. And she heard about somebody who had a moment like this over a decade ago. And it led him to quit his job, dedicate his life to activism. He tried to pull his family into it. And what unfolded was the most extreme example of things going badly in a family that Aviva heard of. They pretty much destroyed his family. He ended up estranged from them. The guy is named Michael Foster. And when Aviva reached out and asked him if he would talk about how his climate activism had damaged his relationship with his wife and children, he was totally up for it. But he told Aviva that he thought his kid's side of the story was actually more important than his. He thought it was crucial that she should talk to them, which, of course, Aviva wanted to do. Both children are now young adults. They were glad to talk. What happened in their family is not necessarily typical of uh, climate activists. 
Mike's activism shifted the whole center of gravity of their family in ways that are definitely uh, particular to his personality. But the immense end-of-the-world stakes of the issue were what sent Mike and his wife Melinda and their kids down the path they went. Here's Avila. Mike and Melinda were never the kind of couple who saw eye-to-eye on the big stuff. They met when they were in high school in Texas. They both did speech and debate and would see one another at the competitions, though they weren't really friends. Mike, who was an evangelical Christian at the time, carried a Bible everywhere and led prayer circles before the tournaments, while Melinda and her friends would smoke weed out back. I mean, his story is that the first time he really remembers meeting me was when uh, he had just finished leading a prayer circle, and he met me, and I had a button. This was back when you wore buttons. And it said, not saved. And his mind just kind of melted that someone would proudly wear a not saved button. (laughs) That's my story. How dare she tell my story? Uh, My mind melted. Like, I didn't know that there were people out there who could, like, just be happy and funny and, and saying, yeah, I'm not saved. Each felt like the other was this kind of exotic bird or something. Totally foreign to them, but also sort of mesmerizing. And so when they went to the same college nearby, they started dating. Mike was no longer an evangelical Christian at that point. But Melinda says their relationship was still very rom-com, opposites attract. They broke up and got back together all throughout college, and then found each other again in their late 20s. At that point, Mike was a child and family therapist, taking kids to the outdoors to do a kind of wilderness therapy. And Melinda had a corporate job, was making good money. So we were together for a few years. He had asked me to marry him a few times, and I was like, you know, I don't think it's a good idea for us to get married. We're just too different. But Mike felt familiar in a way that only first loves can. So eventually, Melinda said yes to Mike's proposal. They got married, had two kids, Emerson and Stella, lived in Seattle. At this point, climate change wasn't a big part of their lives beyond the basic stuff. I mean, we were, we were really green. We were kind of cartoon green Seattle family. So whatever stereotype you have... That was what we were doing. (laughs) They recycled, composted, they used energy-efficient light bulbs. And then, one day, Mike heard about this new documentary he wanted to go see. I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America. An inconvenient truth. Mike convinced Belinda to go see it with him for their date night. Sitting there in the dark... Mike felt like Al Gore had taken all the dots of information about climate change that Mike had picked up over the past couple decades and arranged them into a pointless painting of our future. And the picture was grimmer and more dramatic than he thought. And then, you know, at the end of it, it, it has the credits roll. And during the credits, it will, on this black screen, have these little white letters that say things like, plant a tree, change your light bulbs drive less. And that's it, right? So you've just spent an hour and a half learning that the world is ending and nobody's doing anything, and you're supposed to plant a tree. So there was this kind of, like, major, major disconnect of, um, wait a minute, that's, that's not going to do it. That's not even close. Before the documentary, Mike thought we had time. 
Now, it seemed clear to him. We were just a few decades away from a radically different planet. Mike started poring over climate research, reading every day. He traveled to California to go to a training led by Al Gore himself, where he learned to give a slideshow about climate change. When he came back from the training, Mike showed his kids the slideshow and presented it at their schools. Emrys, Mike's older kid, who, by the way, uses the pronouns they, them, remembers being excited by that. This was in 2012. Emrys was 10 at the time. It felt like kind of like minor celebrity status, right? Because my dad was a guest speaker, and I needed everyone to know that, like, that was my dad. It's like, you know, the presentation we're having today? Yeah, my dad's doing that. Like, I heard that my dad's going to be coming, like, next week to do a presentation in class. Mike and his kids start climate clubs at their schools. Mike also teaches Emerson and Stella the slideshow, and they all start going around to teach it together. Both kids threw themselves into the work. For Emrys, the importance of the topic immediately resonated. But Stella, who was eight, had a much simpler reason. It was a way for me to get his attention. If I asked a question, he would be paying attention to just me rather than, like, the family, which I guess is kind of selfish. But, like, at the time, I was like, Dad, look over here. I, I can ask questions about climate change. I'm smart. News of Mike's slideshow spread, and he started being invited to present at other schools. Pretty early on, Mike decided that kids were the answer. His activism would focus on them. That was already a specialty as a therapist, and he figured children have the most at stake here. They're open to the message, and adults will be able to hear the science from them differently than they'll hear it from other adults. So Mike's first big step down that path, he organized a march with a national kid-centered climate group called I Matter. He says the Seattle police gave the marchers a 14 motorcycle escort to Pike Place Market. Emrys and Stella both spoke at the march. Emrys said they'd never talked in front of so many people before. He like helped me write my speech and he had me practice it a ton. I was super excited to speak there because like everybody's attention was on me. Stella, the younger one, found all the attention a little overwhelming. The main thing I remember uh, was, like, looking at my dad to kind of focus my gaze. To steady you. Yeah. I really looked at him to kind of not freak out. In this speech, and all the ones after it, Emmer says that Mike gave each of them specific roles to fill. Roles that Emmer says they naturally fit into. Stella was the one that would make the audience go, oh my gosh, she's so cute. Hi, I'm Stella Foster, and I'm nine years old. And then I was the one who was supposed to make the audience go like, oh, okay, wow. It was like a one-two punch. Like, Stella disarmed them, and then you went in for the kill. Yeah, basically, yeah. I think I was a little bit supposed to scare people. We just need the adults to get their acts together and realize that each year they wait is 30 more years of floods, fires, droughts, famines, and extinctions. For Melinda, watching Mike and the kids give speeches and spend so much time together, it was really nice. They're having fun and working on something that felt so important. She wasn't around much to help. She had a big job at a telecommunications company that kept her busy and on the road a lot of the time. But she jumped in where she could. She made a website for Mike and did a lot of the behind-the-scenes logistics stuff she's good at. 
Mike got more ambitious and brought the kids along. They started organizing for Plant for the Planet, a kid-run organization with the goal of planting a trillion trees. The whole family recruited friends to join. Mike quit his job to focus on climate work. Emerson and Stella met the governor and the mayor. They were lead plaintiffs in a lawsuit against the state of Washington to curb emissions. They were in an HBO documentary about kid climate activists. But none of that stuff felt like enough to Mike. He was thinking more about the way he and the family were living at home. Melinda and I had an agreement. You know, like I was the vegetarian. I was the one, you know, doing the like make the world better stuff. And she was the one who was working at the corporate giant paying the bills. And I was fine with that. Um, But when I'm doing these climate talks, and I mean like one day would be five talks, and I'm hearing myself going over this material and really grasping at what I'm saying it became harder for me to be okay with the trip to Hawaii. Harder for Mike to be okay because airplanes emit so much carbon dioxide. So I went out on a limb and I was like, this, this, this has no integrity for me anymore. I can't just go along with our agreement. Other people I talked to who went through a wake-up moment, they also got to this point. They came to believe that We have to change our behavior in all kinds of ways to avoid the worst-case scenarios. And we have to do that knowing individual action won't be enough. One family driving an electric car or giving up plastic straws isn't going to do the job. Any serious climate solution will require an overhaul of our energy sources at a global level. But it'll also require us to live differently. Without that, the situation won't change. And that's where things get messy deciding where to draw the line in your own family. The kids really wanted to get a cat. And I was like, well, I grew up with pets. I think that'd be great. And he said, no, we can't do that. And I'm trying to understand why. He says, the the carbon footprint of a domesticated house pet are ridiculous. That is, all the processed meat the pets eat and the cans and plastic the food comes in. Plus, cat litter, dog toys, trips to the vet. We're not going to support that. There, there cannot be pets in this house. The family ended up settling on getting chickens, which turned out to be a good compromise, because the kids loved the chickens. And Mike was happy the chickens produced eggs, because it meant they wouldn't be supporting factory farms that produce supermarket eggs. But flying on planes became a real point of contention in the family. Melinda wanted to take the kids to Disney World for vacation. And he was like, we're not going. We're not? He's like, no, we're never getting on a plane again. Uh, We're not? (laughs) I missed that memo. What, what? And I made the mistake of saying, but I fly for work. And he was like, exactly. And maybe if you didn't fly, the world would be a better place. To Mike, flying felt like an existential threat to his kids' futures and to everyone's. It was unbearable for me to continue doing the things that were going to make their life impossible, actually impossible, in the near future. At the time, did you have any doubts about the lifestyle changes you were making? Because you're sort of having to balance really believing in the cause and also accepting that you're a dad with two kids and 
you know, maybe one pet doesn't actually make that big of a difference in the grand scheme of things, but it does make a really big difference in my kids' lives. Like, how did you balance that? That was really impossible to balance because I'm not talking about a cause, because I'm talking about their survival and the things they're going to suffer when they get older. So anyway, so, so I'm sorry, I'm getting into the preaching mode and we're trying to talk family here. But, but to me, it's the same thing. So Melinda kept flying for work, but nobody else flew. And Melinda didn't like all these changes, but she didn't disagree exactly. Climate change is a noble cause. That was what I was telling myself. This is for the world. This is for a better future for my children and their children. Why am I being such a bitch about it? One of the biggest ways climate activism changed this family is that it turned Mike into a kind of stage dad, performing with his kids all the time, with all the tension and friction that comes with that. It was especially intense because Mike's climate work was all about kids, so he needed his kids to be the face of it. Here's Emrys. I started having issues with my dad when it was like he started feeling more like a coach than a dad. And he was just like bringing more and more and more things. It's like I would wake up in the morning and he would be like, we're leaving in two hours. There's a presentation. Here's your notes. You have to speak. Write a speech now. Emrys had always liked giving speeches, liked writing them. But Mike wanted to see their speeches ahead of time and practice and would get angry if they didn't let him and get mad afterwards if he thought they didn't hit the right points. In front of crowds, Mike was always complimentary of their speeches. It's like when, like, if you're in a theater production and, like, the director, like, gives a talk after the show or something. Like, I was the actor. I played my little part, and then he would come out and be like, oh, I'm so proud. Like, they did an amazing job. My name is Michael Foster, and I am a proud papa right now. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. They blow me away every single time. Um, and then once the audience leaves, it's time for notes. Once they're not looking, then you talk about what you did wrong and everything that you have to do better next time, um, to put it politely. Since Melinda was off working so much of the time, supporting the family, she had no real sense that, increasingly, this had become Emrys and Mike's dynamic. Until, one day, the kids had a speech far outside of town. Melinda drove the family to and from the speech, since she had a hybrid car, and Mike's electric car couldn't make it that far. Emrys had given a speech, and I thought it was brilliant. I, you know, I'm the mom. And we got in the car, and I was driving, and Mike was in the seat next to me, and the kids were in the back, and he was yelling because Emrys hadn't let him read the speech before they gave it. And he was saying, you should have let me read that speech before because I would have told you at the time, I would have told you that you were missing these points. And goddamn it, if you had let me see that, you would have done a better job. You missed your opportunity. You fucked it up and you missed your opportunity. And I'm driving going, whoa. So let me just say, I thought <laughs> it was great. What do you know? You don't even listen half the time. And I was like, whoa.
Looking back, Melinda points to this moment as one of her failures, that she let her kids give speeches after this. But at the time, Mike was so confident in what was right, and Melinda didn't trust the feeling that told her otherwise. So I was like, well, maybe this is their dynamic. Maybe this is how they communicate, that they flare up and they... Not that the kids ever yelled, but maybe Mike yells, but maybe that's how it works. And because the next day they're working on it again. And he's a family therapist or a and child he, and therapist. he's a child and family therapist. So, you know, there's that hanging over my head, too, of like, he knows. He's the expert. This is just the beginning of their family breaking apart. And one of the reasons Mike was eager to speak with me is because he feels pretty in the dark about what happened, what split his family up, and left his kids so bitter that at this point, they haven't spoken to him in years. He doesn't get what he could have done that was so bad his family still wants nothing to do with him. He said he feels like he's in an Agatha Christie novel. He knows he's the killer. He just has no idea how he did it. When we spoke, Mike never contested anyone's memories of what went down. He told me, if they said it, I believe it. He knows he has a temper. Linda said he's always had one. In college, he'd have blow-ups, though she always knew how to calm him down. But Mike and Melinda and the kids all agree. The outburst ramped up considerably after Mike got into climate activism. Melinda said he was never physically violent with her or the kids, but the frequency and the focus of the blow-ups changed. I would just go from like zero to 90, and you would not see it coming. And all of a sudden, it was like, you know, inside me, it felt like, okay, the world is going to end because of this, <laughs> right? Because of, because of something somebody did or said or whatever. You know, like if we, if we can't, if, if our family or you and me can't do this one simple thing, then how does the world get to remain living, right? Like, cause like the stakes always felt that high. Yeah, like sometimes it would just be like, okay, we, I am this person who's in this role trying to like say, here's how we get to live on earth for the next 10,000 years. And I can't persuade my family to let go of the Starbucks cup or whatever the thing was at the moment. Okay, so then the world ends. That's what it actually felt like to you. Yeah. More than once, Mike called Stella a fucking bitch and a cunt. Stella said before Mike got into climate activism, he would yell at her about the kind of stuff any parent might, for lying about brushing her teeth or staying up late past bedtime. But in those instances, Stella knew her dad still loved her. Now she worried about that. I had a good father for years before the climate change started. Like, there were flaws, but... It was only once, like, it it was climate change where he put so much of himself into it and wanted me to put so much of myself into it that I really got the feeling that his love was completely conditional. Stella remembers when she realized she was over climate activism. It was her nine and a half birthday. They celebrate half birthdays in their family. And in celebration, they'd planned a dinner at one of Stella's favorite restaurants. But before they left the house, something happened to set Mike off. 
and he started ranting about the state of the world. Stella said that when her dad got into climate talk mode, there was nothing to do but listen. 15 minutes ticked by, then 30, then 45. I just remember thinking, like, I just want to talk about what we did at school today. I want to talk about this cat I saw on the walk home. I want to talk on my half birthday and feeling like it was not an option for me to talk because he was talking. Stella never told anyone she wanted to quit activism because deep down, she felt like she had this personal responsibility to stop climate change. Secretly, Emrys was feeling the same way. The more I started realizing that I didn't want to do it, the worse a person I was. Like, horrible things are going to happen to people because I'm not willing to do this. It felt like I was the worst person in the world. It was all guilt, all the time, and fear. It was fear of him and fear of the apocalypse. Stella's carbon footprint started to haunt her. When her mom drove her to school, when she drank a glass of milk, even when she exhaled sometimes, she'd think, all I'm doing is putting more carbon dioxide into the air. She started having nightmares every night of the world burning, or of oceans rising and flooding her house, or of going to the grocery store and finding the shelves completely bare because droughts had killed off all the plants. Mike and Melinda both told me they had no idea the kids were feeling this way at the time, which, Emerson Stella said, makes sense. They were good at hiding it. When I asked Mike about how bad the kids felt, he said he never meant to make his kids feel as bad as they did. But he also defended guilt as a tactic. Guilt is seriously underrated. Guilt and shame keep people from murdering each other. And honestly... Guilt may be one of the few things that could keep life on Earth going for the next 10,000 years. If we can't feel guilt or shame about what we're doing and learn how to do something else, it's over. it was over a long time ago. One way to hear this story is that it's not about climate change, but about a dad who sort of goes off the deep end for reasons that have more to do with his own personality than anything else. But I can't dismiss the role climate change plays in this story. I think the grim picture of the future that Mike carries in his head is actually more accurate than the picture most of us carry around. And it's genuinely hard to figure out the right way to have feelings about climate change. It's easy to lose perspective when the problem is so vast and woven into every part of how we live how we get to work, what we eat. And the stakes are so high. I talked to other people who had wake-up moments, many of whom are reasonable and kind and not alarmist by nature, who alienated their families and in lots of cases lost their families in the wake of their newfound clarity. Melinda and the kids see all that, but also believe it didn't have to go this way. Melinda said that to me in our very first conversation. Mike could have done his climate work without torturing his family. That is, he didn't need to cuss out his kids.
coming up, how the most ambitious, arguably most successful thing you ever do as a political activist can also be the worst thing that you do for your family. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's just American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, the end of the world as we know it. If you're just tuning in, we're in the middle of a Viva de Kornfeld story about Mike Foster and his family. And how his climate activism led to changes in their family and ultimately divorce and his estrangement from his two kids who he hasn't spoken with in years. We will pick up where we left off. Both of his kids, Stella and Emerus, want to quit doing activism with their dad. Again, here's Aviva. It takes about two years of going to climate meetings and speaking at rallies with their dad before Stella and Emrys confided in each other about how they really felt about it and what they actually wanted. Here's Emrys. I remember we were out on the back porch, like, going inside, and Stella stopped me, and she was like, she whispered, do you think mom and dad are going to get a divorce? And I was like, I don't know, but I kind of hope so. And she was like, me too. And that was really, yeah, after that, it was kind of better because we, like, had that solidarity. Stella started doing secret research about parental custody to figure out the odds that she and Emrys would get to live with their mom in the event that her parents did get divorced. And she started dropping hints. She was just beginning sixth grade around this time, and her school offered these elective support groups. There were a bunch of different options, and one of the groups was for kids with divorced parents. That was a group Stella signed up for. When Melinda found out which group Stella had joined and asked her about it, Stella shrugged and said, you know, just in case. Things continued like this for a while, everyone going through the motions, until it all came to a head one night. Emrys wanted to go to a Fall Out Boy concert. Mike insisted they come to the monthly Plant for the Planet meeting instead. When the meeting was over, Emerson and Stella waited by the car for 45 minutes, in the cold, before he came out. We started driving home. I think I was very obviously sulking. And ultimately I told him that I was like annoyed that he had taken so long to come back and that I hadn't really wanted to go to the meeting in the first place. And he just lost it. He got so mad. Stella remembers this night, too. He was shouting in this car, just yelling, like, you're ungrateful, you don't realize how much I do for you, why can't you just go along with it for one night, what is your problem, what is so important about this fucking concert, and he was driving erratically. He would pull the car over super fast and turn and start yelling at us again, like unprompted. (sighs) And what are you guys doing at that point? We are literally, both of us are just sitting in the back seat, mouths closed, eyes wide, crying, absolutely terrified. I'd never seen him that angry, and I'd seen him get angry a lot. Um, And so, yeah, when we came home, we just, like, got out of the car as fast as we possibly could and ran inside, like, to get to our mom because it was, like, the safe zone and, like, a game of tag or something. It was, like, she meant protection from him. I was in the family room, and the door flew open, The kids came running in, crying, sobbing, and their dad came running in after them 
screaming at the top of his lungs. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what, what is happening here? What is going on? And I went upstairs to talk to the kids and they said they were afraid they were gonna die in the car. I'm like, what the hell happened? Melinda made up her mind. Not long after that night, she told Mike she wanted a divorce. Mike calls it a climate divorce. Melinda says no. If anything, climate change kept them together longer than they should have been. I, I, I feel like I, I looked past and accepted so much more of what was bad because it was in service of climate change. If he had been a QAnon conspirator, it would have been so easy for me to say, no, not doing that. But it's climate change. I am... (laughs) Mike and Melinda get divorced, and Mike moves just a few blocks away. The kids get to live with their mom full-time, as they'd hoped. And to establish some sort of new relationship with Mike, they try a couple rounds of family therapy. But according to the therapist notes, the first round crashes and burns because Mike keeps interrupting to explain climate change and the importance of his work to the therapist. When they try again months later, Stella gets up the courage to tell Mike her big secret for the first time, that she doesn't want to be a climate activist anymore, that she was only doing it because she felt he gave her no choice. Stella figured he'd say he was sorry, and she prepared herself to forgive him. But instead, Mike seemed angry. He did apologize. But the thing he apologized for was that he hadn't invited her to more climate events so that she'd be more emotionally invested in the cause, see it the way he did. A word to listeners who might be sensitive to this. This next part of the story mentions self-harm. I just remember feeling like... I'm never going to escape him and wanting everything to just be done with because I was so tired of having to explain these things that I'd gone through and having to think about him and having to talk about him and talk to him and having him not be who I needed him to be when I needed it, it just all became too much. About an hour and a half after the session with her dad, Stella attempted suicide. She spent the next eight days in the hospital. She told her mom to keep her dad away from her. She didn't even want him to know she was in there. For me, it was the first time that I said no. I mean, it it wasn't very dignified. I was kind of like screaming and crying like, no, don't let him in, don't let him in. But... Um, I think having a complete break from him where, like, he just stopped being at all a consideration for a week, but also having had the power to remove him was really critical for me. I told Mike what Stella said, how their conversation in therapy was a breaking point for her just before her suicide attempt. He said he had no idea. He didn't remember apologizing for the wrong thing. For saying he was sorry, he didn't get her more invested in climate work. I wish I could remember saying it. Uh, It sounds like the kind of stuff that would have come out of my mouth. And what a shitty thing when she needed something else. After that, 
Mike stopped trying to contact Stella. She didn't want him to, and the therapist said it could be dangerous for Stella. So he laid low, hoping the kids were okay, and waiting for an invite to return to the family. Stella says that with the burden of fixing her relationship with her dad lifted, she started doing a lot better. Freed from climate work, she had time to do things that she actually liked, like reading fantasy novels. She also got a great therapist and started taking antidepressants, which she said have really helped. And so, with Stella feeling sturdier, it seemed like Mike and the kids might possibly find a way to rebuild, have a relationship of some kind, however fractured. Until this next thing happened, which brought about the end of their world as they knew it. It was the fall of 2016, a little over a year after Stella's suicide attempt, and she reached out to ask for a meeting with her dad and Emrys and the therapist. In the meeting, Stella and Emrys told their dad that for them to consider having a relationship again, they needed him to stop doing climate work for a while. Here's Stella. He said he would, and that, it made me really happy. It felt like change. Emrys was struck too. Maybe if he could get rid of that, then he really does care about us. Like, he must really love us if he's willing to give that up. A few weeks after that, after Mike told his kids he would stop doing climate activism, he did his most extreme climate action ever. Protesters manually turned off five oil pipelines today. One of the five protesters can be seen here turning off the pipeline valve in North Dakota. The group says Mike traveled to North Dakota, broke past the fence around the Keystone Pipeline, and turned a valve, shutting off the flow of oil. He was arrested on site, and at that point charged with six felonies and two misdemeanors, which combined could land him in prison for more than 90 years. I was mad. I was so mad. Here's Emrys again. Man, I was pissed. I... I mean... That was the point where, you know, he's, he's saying he would stop doing all this for us. And it's like, oh, he's going to prison. Here's Stella. That moment really just was it for me. I just didn't care anymore. It felt like relief because there was no small voice in my head saying, but he's your dad. You've got to love him. I was complete and whole and didn't need him and didn't want him. A bunch of the charges were either dismissed or amended, but Mike ended up spending six months in prison. He told me he didn't realize his kids were asking him to stop climate activism right then. He thought they meant someday. He said he had no idea this was the last straw for them. The valve turning propelled Mike to fame in a new way especially in their little green Seattle community, Melinda says. Then the story was, he's a hero. Look what he's done. He's a hero. He's a hero. And there was an article in the local Seattle magazine which painted him as this martyr and talked about how he sacrificed his relationship with his children for the planet and... They they tried to say that, you know, yeah, we didn't, we couldn't fly anymore, and the marriage broke apart, and, and he had a quote saying something like, you know, basically, I just annoyed the fuck out of them. I was like, that is so, that is such a simple viewpoint. You didn't annoy the fuck out of us. 
you were as annoying as fuck, but <laughs> you actually wounded us. You harmed us. You hurt us. After the Seattle Magazine article came out, climate people would come up to Melinda and the kids and tell them they should really talk to Mike again. They should forgive him because he's doing such important work. But Emrys doesn't see his work that way. I think it's made it so that his name means something, but to very few people. It's a subset of people who are already inclined to that stuff, but he hasn't achieved anything. I mean, with his climate stuff, like I said, the valve turning had no effect. The oil got there a couple hours later. Um, he's made a series of empty gestures and spent years posturing as a hero and a family man and has just destroyed everything I think that was actually meaningful about his life. And I think on some level he knows that and that's part of why he's so distressed about having lost his family. I don't know. I guess I wish him well, but he can find meaning that isn't family at this point because we're, we're done with him. It's been nearly six years since Mike and Melinda got divorced. There's been essentially no contact between Mike and the kids since the valve turning. The first time I talked to Mike... Our interview lasted nine hours, mostly because almost every question I asked about his family, he ended up veering into climate change, how bad things were, how no one was doing enough, how so many endemic species face extinction this century, a fact he told me four times in our interview. He oscillated between extreme sadness over his non-existent relationship with his kids, to anger about the state of the world, to agitated concern that I hadn't asked him any of the right questions yet, because I hadn't asked him about the science, about what it was going to take to change things. The morning after our interview, I woke up to an email from Mike, and he asked for a do-over. He said he'd accidentally gone into climate rant mode, instead of speaking as a dad. He said, quote, I can't live with what I said. I can't. My ramblings sound monstrous and idiotic. We tried again. He told me he didn't agree with his family, that the problem was his personality and the way he handled his activism. He thought there were things he could have done better, but the real problem was that he and Melinda weren't on the same page. I told him I didn't think having two parents like him would have solved things with the kids. He didn't see it, and didn't understand why his family couldn't have brought up how they were feeling with him. Like, it's still news to me that they're afraid to talk to me about this stuff. I, I understand we've, you've kind of told me that there were these moments when I got angry and I was really, really scary to them. And a big person and little kids totally get that and take responsibility for that. And yet the apologies, the talks, the hugs, the bedtimes, the whatever, the living life that happened in between these whatever months of not being angry, I guess I was, I was under the illusion that they could talk to me about anything. 
it sounds like you didn't at the time realize how your behavior was impacting them. But there are like a few interactions that seem like even at the time you would have understood the impact. Like Emrys mentioned that you had called Stella a fucking bitch and a cunt when she was really little, like 10. Yeah. Which that feels like that you was would understand. Horrible. That was horrible. That was a nightmare. I could yeah. see how it'd be hard after that, after your dad calls you a cunt to ever not, say anything yes. to him to make him angry again. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I did anything and everything I could afterwards to make it right. But come on, you're right. It, that was a thing that you can't take back. Yeah. So I live with that. I'm broken. I don't know why I'm here. The thing I love the most is the thing I'm farthest from. Things for Melinda and the kids are pretty good these days. Stella just turned 18. She says her climate nightmares only come every couple weeks, instead of nightly. And she's off at college this fall, a milestone that, for a while, she never thought she'd reach. Emrys is 19. They work on a boat, teaching kids about marine life and maritime skills, a job they love. Though they skip out on teaching the lessons about climate change. They said they're not ready to do that yet. While I was out in Seattle doing my interviews this summer, the Pacific Northwest was in the midst of the most extreme heat wave in the region's recorded history. Cable lines melted, roads cracked in the heat, over a hundred people died. Stella told me that, during the heat wave, she had to sit in her room and repeat to herself, things are bad and there's nothing you can do about it, until the feeling passed. Emma says, in low moments, their dad's voice pops into their head and tells them they haven't done anything with their life, that all they do is turn oxygen into carbon. Melinda and I did our interview in her office, the only place we could find central AC. It was 106 degrees outside. She told me, the irony isn't lost on her. Mike was right about the climate. She said the hairs stand up on the back of her neck when she thinks about it. Melinda and the kids, they try to block it out. But that's getting harder and harder. Aviva Kornfeld, she's the producer on our show. Just a note, uh, if you or somebody you know might need help, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-TALK. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. A two, out of the crying pan and into the fire. So there are all sorts of ways your world can end. And sometimes you want it to end. You need it to end. Because that's the only way you can get to a new beginning. A couple weeks ago, I watched 15,000 people who wanted exactly that. Okay, so we're standing in Fort Marcy Park in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, under a 50-foot puppet. My guide for this is Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi, who grew up here in Santa Fe. 
He's also one of the hosts of NPR's Planet Money podcast. Technically uh, speaking, the puppet is a marionette, a ginormous one, five stories tall, with a green ghoulish head on a hill towering over a baseball field in public park. His name's Zobra. He's kind of the scapegoat of uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Everybody puts, they write down all of their anguish and sadness and misfortune that they've experienced in the last year, and they fill his whole body up. And then at the end of the night, he's going to be lit on fire and uh, supposedly purge all of our, our sadness. Alexi's been coming since grade school, when his class would visit during the day and watch them hoist his over into the air. And the sadnesses that he would write down to be burned were about unrequited crushes and not getting the part in the student production of Grease. He shows me the uh, ditch in the back of the park, this arroyo that his friends in high school would run through if they were sneaking in a bottle of tequila or something and wanted to avoid security. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, kids do drugs, kids get drunk, but, like, also the crowd turns really angry, and it's actually kind of like a scary, it can be really scary out here. As much as it's like a thing where people are releasing whatever's been making them sad throughout the year, it's also like everyone directs their rage that they normally are kind of hiding towards this puppet figure up on the hill, and people are screaming to burn him, and they're screaming expletives, and uh, it's just a, like a side of people you don't see usually, and you'll see everybody here. It's like Santa Fe is a small town, and so I've you know seen teachers from from high school or from elementary school as far gone as any of us. Drunk. Drunk. But Alexei says you see everybody here. Just to put that in perspective, Santa Fe's population is around 80,000. 60,000 people usually come to Zizobra. Though uh, this year, because of COVID, they have limited attendance to a fourth of that. It's tons of families, maybe half Latino. The sadnesses that people write down to be burned are officially called glooms, and they're collected in boxes in town before the event and at the event. Come right up. We've got plenty of paper, plenty of pens, and plenty of boxes. You got the gloom? We have the receptacle. That's not, that doesn't work. Is it? You're going to have to make a rhyme. <laughs> You've got the gloom, we've got the room. There you go. You want to you stand in here? No, not so much. As I'm sure you know, it has been a boffo year for gloom. Lots of people wrote notes about COVID and loved ones they lost. But also about other big glooms. Climate, Afghanistan... Alexei's got some family in Kabul that he's worried about, and he put that into his note for Zosobro, along with some other people he wanted to remember. People write down all kinds of personal stuff. Like right now, my dad's in a psych hospital this week, and I like, I'm actually, well, I'm picking him up tomorrow, but I wrote in something for him. So I just put the, um, I know this is a little personal story, but I put my ex left me, my uncle and dad passed away, and then my friends were ghosting me, and then I just said 2021 has to gotta go. At the Gloombox tables, I saw an eight-year-old boy, Julian, who carefully wrote in a slip of paper, I miss mom. I miss the house. His dad, Joaquin, explained. Basically what happened was because of COVID and everything, losing my job, I wasn't able to make the payments on the house, and I ended up losing it. So that's about it. Yeah. Julian's mom moved to Colorado. In the past, people have brought legal papers from disastrous lawsuits to go into Zobra for burning. This year, Kay Arnold's medical diagnosis made it into the pile. Kay was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer in May. She was in Texas and drove in with her daughter to watch it burn. 
Stage four breast cancer is not at this time curable. So, you know, I'm responding well, I'm being treated, but what else are you gonna do with the cancer diagnosis, right? Stick it in a big giant zombie, set it on fire. What do you think it's gonna be like to see it burn? I think it's gonna be invigorating. I'm already on the verge of tears, yeah. Why does it work to burn something in an effigy? I just think it helps you to feel like it's gone. I don't know, it's just, that's that's a good question. It feels like you're doing something, especially about something that maybe you can't do anything about, you know? I don't know. It feels like, I mean, when you can't do anything, why not set it on fire? She'd already done everything reasonable for her illness. Doctors, medicines, time to try something unreasonable. Katerina Valdez brought her wedding dress to be burned. One of the organizers actually sent her a photo of the dress hanging inside Zazobra that she showed me on her phone. So that's the back of the of the Sizobra, and then my dress is right there at the bottom with the envelope that I put. I put a letter from myself just saying goodbye to my past that time in my life. It's interesting, it's just hanging there, like on a hanger. Yeah, it's on a hanger. It really, literally is on a plastic hanger hanging in Sizobra's. Also in that envelope, has, uh, some photos that she never wants to see again, and a promise ring given to ask forgiveness, Katerina says for something she never should have forgiven. She was married for seven years. What's it like to see that there? Um, it's really exciting. I'm sick of seeing it in my mom's closet, and I've been divorced for three years, and I want to move on. I have three beautiful children that are finally in a really healthy and safe environment with us, and they're you know thriving at school. I have a beautiful and amazing new partner. He's going to start giggling. Um, we've been dating for seven months (laughs) and so it's just like it's the perfect time to do this she'd love to bring the kids with her to see the dress burn but she said they're with her dad actually at Zobra somewhere right then (laughs) and um he I don't I don't know if he knows now I didn't tell him but I'm sure my kids did wait wait I just want to look out on the field so somewhere in this field is your ex-husband with your three kids children yes who have definitely told him that your wedding dress is in there (laughs) yep (laughs) She said if it upsets him, she's sorry. But you needed to turn the dress into ashes. The sun sets, and the crowd starts chanting for the big moment. I watch the burn with Katerina and her boyfriend. I'm a lot more nervous than I thought I was going to be. Costume dancers set off fires in a line across the stage and taunts Zobra, who moans and waves his arms in protest. A dancer in red carrying torches sets him on fire. Skyrockets shoot off. Orange light starts to flicker inside the Zobra's body. There he goes, there he goes, baby, there he goes. Oh my God. Baby, there he goes. Oh my gosh. Baby, there his dress goes. Baby. The Zobra's dress basically makes up the bottom half of his body. And of course, inside his dress is Katarina's dress. Hey, look, now there's fire inside the dress. There it goes! Baby, there it goes! There's his skirts! And that's where my dress was. Jezobra flails his arms just a little while longer, and then it's done. There it goes. He just collapsed to the ground. Oh yeah, our glooms are gone. And that's it. Our glooms are gone, and we move on. (laughs) You feel good? Yeah. Yeah, I feel amazing. And you feel different than you did earlier. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is what I, I hoped for. So it worked. It worked. So I'm excited to, to see what the morning brings. Everyone Alexi and I talked to afterward said they felt different, less encumbered. Though nobody could explain exactly why. If you said it's just primal, throwing something into the fire to vanquish it. Even Kay, the woman from Texas who burned her medical records, told me she knows her diagnosis. She knows she's going back to the doctors and the medicines. But even she felt more hopeful, like a fresh start. As people started uh, to clear out of the park, a handful gathered around the smoking embers of Zizobra to roast marshmallows on the flames of their unhappy year, welcoming the new one with burnt, sugary sweetness. by Miki Meek and Aviva de Kornfeld. The people who put together today's show include Bim Adewumni, Sean Cole, Damian Graves, Seth Lynn, Mary Marge Locker, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Alyssa Ship, Jessica Suriano, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Chloe Weiner. Our managing editor this week, Diane Wu, senior editor David Kestenbaum, our executive editor Emmanuel Barry. Special thanks today to Rebecca Huntley, who you heard in the opening of our program. One of the things that she did after her wake-up moment is write a book. It's called How to Talk About Climate in a Way that Makes a Difference, which is where we first heard of her. Also thanks today to Brett Ween, Casey Suther, Christy Drutman, Juliet Leo, Beth Hose, Fred Arisman, Lisa Jaramillo, Desiree Lira, and Julia Goldberg, who was manning the gloom boxes at Zozobra. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. He was making fun of me this week because uh, he found out that I am really into skateboards, though I have to say not the entire skateboard, okay? I don't care about the deck or the wheels. Why, you're super passionate about trucks. Like, I just didn't know you're, like, so into trucks. Like, was this always a thing? I think it's really great. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.